Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and our connection to our own humanity. This is episode 103, another joint episode with Melita Thomas of Tudor Times, this time on Francis Walsingham. First, though, I want to thank my lovely patrons, the patrons of this show who keep it independent. Thank you to Elizabeth, Kathy, Cynthia, Jurgen, Sarah, Megan, Melissa, Lady Anne, aka Jessica, Olivia, Al, Ashley, Kendra, Cynthia, Judith, Renee, Katie, Mara, Emily, Selene, Lara, Ian, Barbara, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Joanna, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Susan, Andrea, Catherine, Rebecca from Tudor's Dynasty, Shandor, Philip, and John. To learn more about how you can become a part of this intelligent and discerning group for as little as a dollar an episode, go to patreon.com slash englandcast. Also, remember you can support the show in two other ways. First and free, you can leave a rating on iTunes, makes a huge difference. And second, if you're looking for gifts for your Tudorholic friends, and that actually might be you, you can go shopping at TudorFair.com, which is the place for Tudor swag and fun products like these gorgeous Anne Boleyn leggings with the portrait and the iconic bee necklace woven throughout. It's really beautiful. There's lots of other fun stuff there. So TudorFair.com for that. So now let me introduce you to Melita. Melita Thomas is a co-founder and editor of Tudor Times, a website devoted to Tudor and Stuart history from the period of 1485 to 1625. You can find it at tudortimes.co.uk. Melita, who has always been fascinated by history ever since she saw the 1970s series Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson, also contributes articles to BBC History Extra and Britain Magazine. He's an interesting character. He is. I, I think, I, I was thinking about this, this this morning, about the whole, you know, religious divide and how, how some people, it, it was more, and, and still is, if you look at similar things in the world today, you know, how much was it love of God and how much was it hatred of the other guy? Right, and, right. You know, what's the balance? And some people seem far more concerned about what the other guy they don't agree with is up to than actually, you know, 
following their religion themselves. And it, it's interesting. to, But to be fair to Walsingham, I think he was genuinely um, religious in his own life. And he didn't, although he was very keen to capture spy uh, rebels and traitors and those who supported Mary, Queen of Scots, I don't get the impression that he particularly liked religious persecution or... I mean, he accepted it as a necessity, as everybody did in those days. But he, I don't think he was he was a zealot for persecution, exactly. He just right. wanted everybody to conform to the law. Right. So then let's, I guess we can just jump in. Can What can you tell yeah. me about his, uh, his early life and the kind of family? Was he born into a Protestant family? Well, he was born in about 1532. So there were no Catholics and no Protestants in the, in the sort of hardline sense. There were, everybody was Catholic, but there were evangelicals. This is, mm-hmm. this is in England. Uh, he certainly was born into an evangelical family. His his mother, uh, a woman called Joyce Denny, she was the sister of Sir Anthony Denny, who was a member of Henry VIII's Privy Chamber. And the Denny family were very early adopters of evangelical modes of thought, and then later Protestants. And the Walsinghams as well seem to have had a leaning in that direction. Mm. Francis's father, he was a lawyer, and they had lots of court connections, but Walsingham Sr. died when Francis was just a child, you know, probably about 18 months old. And his mother's second husband was Sir John Carey, whose brother, William Carey, was the, the husband of, Anne Bo- of, of Mary Boleyn, Anne Boleyn's sister. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they also, the Careys, seem to have been um, evangelicals as well. So from a very early age, Francis would have been brought up to be as Protestant as the law allowed at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What was his early education then? Like you said, his father was a lawyer. Did he go into that? Well, he we don't know what his, his sort of first education was like, but he went to King's College, Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And whilst he was there, uh, Sir John Cheek was um, the provost of the, of the university. And John Cheek was the tutor to Edward VI and a Protestant. And also Martin, and I never know whether to pronounce it Booker or Booser, because it's mm-hmm. one of those words you only ever read and never actually say say but he was a very he was a very prominent reformer who was keen to bring together different branches of reform the Lutherans the Calvinists the Zwinglians and all the various other branches so Walsingham would have known both men and probably been influenced by them. Cambridge was really a hotbed of um, reform with the White Horse Tavern or whatever it was, right? Yes. Was he involved with that scene? Do we know? Not that we know of. That was probably a little in the generation before him, Cranmer and and Ah. his friends. Uh, King's was not quite the hotbed that St. John's was, which I always think is ironic given that St. John's was founded by... um, Margaret Beaufort, Beaufort. although you don't know Margaret Beaufort you know like many of the religious women in France could have could have become an evangelical in a different generation it just you know you just wonder what what she would have been like a generation later so that's a you know yeah (laughs) I thought after he left Cambridge he didn't take his degree because um he didn't have any intention of going into the church it would seem uh he did go to Gray's Inn and start legal training. But it's not clear that he ever completed legal training. But he did have, he had five older sisters who were married into the the city, the city great and the good, and also into court circles. So he had a very wide network of people from all, all strata of the, the middle and middle classes and up. So then he would have come of age during the reign of Edward. Yes. Um, And so what was 
Can you talk to me a little bit about what that was like for him? And then we can get into what happened to him under yeah. Mary. Again, we don't we don't exactly know because, of course, he wasn't famous then. But given that his upbringing, um, you know, that his, his uh, stepfather was John Carey, who was the steward of the, the royal household at Hunsdon. So although we, there's no proof that he knew Elizabeth and Lester, uh, Robert Dudley, at that time, it's likely that he did because Dudley lived in the household as one of the companions of Edward VI and Elizabeth was often there. Hmm. So it's likely that that's how he began to mix in those circles. He certainly had a had a close personal friendship with Dudley later in life. And William Sissel was again in the same the same group. The Denny's and the Sissels were friends. Uh, so there's a whole sort of network, the Dudleys, the Sissels, the Denny's, the Walsingham's, the of of Protestant families. Mm-hmm. And he was at he was at the heart of that. So although in Edward's reign he was um well so he would have been fifteen when Henry VIII died, so he was still too young to be uh, taking up government positions, but it's likely he was sort of on the in on the outer fringes and uh, knew people who were in power and was influenced by the religious uh, reformation of the time. Mm. He was certainly by the end of Edward's reign, a, you know, a committed Protestant. Mm-hmm. What happened to him under Mary? Well, yes. So <laughs> un- when when Mary became queen, the initial government policy was to try to persuade everybody to return to Catholicism because most people still were Catholics. It was quite a there was a strong and powerful group at the centre of government, the, the Dudleys, the Cecils, the Walsh, you know, who who were evangelical Protestants, but most of the country mm-hmm. wasn't that bothered, or, you know, and there as always, there were some strong views on either side. So quite a lot of people who had taken up Protestantism, either genuinely or for reasons of policy, reverted to being Catholics and obeyed the law, amongst whom was Sir William Cecil, who yeah, obeyed the law and became very close to Cardinal Poole. There were a group who didn't, who, who couldn't accept Mary as Queen or Philip of Spain as, as her husband, and they got involved in Wyatt's Rebellion. There's no evidence that Francis did, but it's probable that one of his cousins, one of his Walsingham cousins, was, was involved in it. Hmm. So late, uh, in, by 1555, Walsingham had joined those Protestants who were unable to live under Mary and who uh, went into exile. It's not clear exactly when he went. He may have gone after Wyatt's Rebellion or it might have been a bit later. But certainly by 1555, he he didn't feel able to conform to the law, which you can admire. You know, he wasn't a, he he wasn't prepared to be a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. So he went to Basel and spent a good deal of time there, along with his co- several cousins he took with him. He also went to Padua, which, despite being in Italy, was was quite a hotbed of English Protestant exiles. Mm. And he had quite a leading position amongst them in Padua. What did he do there? Like, was he connected to the, what, did he write? What, did he teach? Like, what, what was his life like when he was there? What he did do, he represented this student. So I'm, let me just find the exact um, role that he held in Padua. Um, well, he certainly improved his languages. He was noted as ha- being, uh, having a very, um, very uh, fine facility with languages. He spoke uh, French and Italian extremely well, and also his his Latin was was excellent. So that gave him um, many options later. So I guess he studied and became very friendly with the Earl of Bedford, 
who was another Protestant exile. So it's it's certainly possible that he could have worked for Bedford, but he may have been supported by him or had some sort of financial um, assistance from Bedford. He would have had a small income from his lands at home, probably. I mean, there was there, during Mary's reign, there was a move by the government to confiscate the lands of exiles, but it was defeated in the Commons. Mm. So it so if he had had um, you know good friends, they they would have sent him sent him his money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it, whilst he was in uh, in Basel, he also met John Fox, uh, you know, famous for the, the Book of Martyrs, and John Knox as well, who was in exile from Scotland. Both of those were obviously, you know, very radical in their views. In particular, some of their of Knox's political views seem to have rubbed off on Walsingham. The idea that tyrants, as they perceived them, ought to be overthrown. So Walsingham was always um, one of those who thought that monarchs who overstepped the mark should be overthrown. And this is where he often came into conflict with Queen Elizabeth, who was very, very keen to uphold um, monarchical, monarchical? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the, the authority of the monarch. So whereas, whereas Walsingham felt that it ought to be limited, to say the least of it. I'm still looking for what he got up to in Padua. Oh, yes, he was a spokesman for the English students in, at Padua's university. And he must have had plenty of money because while he was there, he, he's recorded of, as, as buying rather a lot of wine. And he also bought himself a clavichord, a sort of wow. musical instrument. <laughs> yes, he was quite musical, actually. There's, there's other evidence. But yes, we can think of him. He wasn't necessarily. We think of Puritans as being very dour and narrow. But at this period, they weren't. It was more about purifying the church of Catholic excess rather than uh, puritanical in their their approach to life generally. What happened once Elizabeth became queen and he came back? How did he become, um, well, what was his early life, his early career like? And he became a member of parliament, was it? He did. He became a member of parliament in Elizabeth's first parliament of 1559, which he was sponsored for the seat of Bassini in Cornwall by, by the Earl of Bedford who, as I say, had been a fellow exile. I don't suppose he ever went anywhere near Bassini. It wasn't required because these were, I mean, there was there was democracy in the sense that the, the freeholders with lands above the value of 40 shillings per annum could select their MP, but basically they selected whoever the local landowner told them to select, mm. more or less. I mean, it wasn't always quite as black and white as that. So, but there was certainly no need to go campaigning or anything. And Bassini is deep into Cornwall, so probably quite a tricky place to get there. Um, so he, he sat in that parliament 15, 1559, which approved the Act of Uniformity, the Book of Common Prayer of 1552, with a few uh, minor modifications to make it more acceptable to, to Catholics. But then he didn't have any government position at that time. He got married in the early 1560s became a JP and lived on his estates in um, Parkbury in Hertfordshire. Then he he also sat in the 1563 Parliament again for one of the Earl of Bedford's seats, but this time at Lyme Regis. So it wasn't until 1568 that he actually got involved in government in any way. He'd been widowed by then and remarried uh, a a lady called Ursula St. Barb. He was a diplomat 
Right. So, um, how did he make that move and how did he, how did he kind of get into government? And then, because I'm thinking about he was in Paris for he the was. St. Bartholomew's yeah. Day. So that's only mm. a couple of years then from his first government job. Can you talk to me like leading up to Paris? So 1568, uh, his old friend William Sissel thinks, aha, I know just the man for a job I've got. The, the issue was uh, this one of the most curious incidents in the whole of the, Elizabethan sort of spies and traitors stories. It was a chap called Roberto Ridolfi, who was a Florentine. Uh, no, actually, I, I go back. Um, uh, Cecil, uh, in 1568, Mary, Queen of Scots, had escaped, unfortunately for her, to England in the hope that uh, Elizabeth would help her back onto her throne in Scotland. And Cecil wanted to um, put spies in Mary's household, as was pretty much the norm. And he wanted an Italian chap called Franchiotti to um, take this role. And Franchiotti was yeah, fine with that. But Walsingham was um, used as the the translator and the, the man to actually liaise with Franchiotti because his Italian was so good. So that was his first role. And then the second element was, uh, as slightly later, Roberto Rodolfi, another Italian. I mean, it's very unclear whether he was a double agent or whether he um, was on nobody's side or being paid by both. But as another Italian, Walsingham questioned him and elicited information about uh, what was going on in Mary's household and letters that were going between Queen Mary and the Pope, who Rodolfi was apparently representing. So that's that's how he first got involved. And then he obviously impressed Walsingham and Elizabeth, and he was appointed as ambassador to Paris, probably again because of his uh, facility with French. His role there was uh, to build an alliance between France and England, probably to be cemented by a marriage between Elizabeth and Henri, the Duke of Anjou. And uh, Francis thought this was a good idea, despite Anjou's um, Catholic religion, because he feared Spain more than he feared France, which wasn't necessarily Elizabeth's position. She she didn't she she was, had concerns about both of them. She certainly felt that France could be pretty threatening, but Walsingham always seems to have felt that France was the lesser of two evils. He mm. went off to mm. France's ambassador, his wife, and they had two little girls, uh, one born um, in France, I think, and one one before they'd gone, Frances and Mary, their names were. So he went off to France with Ursula and he was you know, fated by the French court as the representative of Elizabeth, uh, met King Charles IX and Catherine de' Medici, who, um, the, the Queen Mother, who had a very powerful position in the French court. And he, he tried to negotiate this marriage, but the Duke of Anjou was really not terribly interested. He was very Catholic, perhaps more so than his brother and his mother. And he was a lot younger than Elizabeth and he was probably homosexual. Not that that mattered mm. in the sense that he, he did later marry, although he had no children, was actually really very attached to his wife. And of course, um, they didn't think of sexuality quite quite as we do. But the, mm. the marriage didn't come off. But uh, Francis was still keen to create an alliance between the two countries. And it wasn't. But then he got caught up in the St. Bartholomew's Massacre, which there'd been a treaty between a treaty called the Treaty of Saint-Germain. That was it. The Treaty of Saint-Germain, which was between the French Catholics and the French Huguenots or Protestants. And the 
the main thrust of this was that to bring the two factions together, the king's sister, Marguerite, would marry the king of Navarre, who was a Huguenot. And that had been agreed. And this was the ceremony that was to take place in Paris on in August of 1572. And this became the catalyst, the, the, the hardline Catholic League, who were mostly led by Mary, Queen of Scots, um, uncles and cousins, the Guise family, supported by the Spanish with you know, money and um, moral support at this stage, didn't like the, the increasing level of influence that the Huguenots had. They objected to King Charles and Queen Catherine trying to find an accommodation with the Huguenots. And they particularly disliked the fact that one of Charles's um, personal friends and favourites, the Admiral Gaspard de Coligny, was was a Huguenot. And the Guises uh, arranged his assassination, basically. All the various complications, and there was a sh- stabbing and a shooting, and goodness knows what. But this then exploded into, a, well, genocide, effectively. Um, the Catholics across France slaughtered the, the Protestants. I mean, again, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's all sorts of views of how, how serious it was. Has it been blown out of proportion? How many? You know, and there have been guesstimates of anywhere between 7,000 killed and 70,000 killed across France. So it could be anywhere between those numbers. But you can imagine that Francis Walsingham and his family were, you know, completely terrified. They were they were hiding in their house. There wasn't an official embassy in those days. The embassy was wherever the ambassador lived, trying to protect mm-hmm. Huguenots, English Protestants who were in France. And they also took in a couple of um, French refugees, effectively, they were in a very dangerous situation. Fortunately for Walsingham, he 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 wasn't personally um, attacked, but he was traumatized by the whole affair, as as one would be. And I've heard things about the Saint Bartholomew's Day massacre and how that changed the perception in England of Catholics, um, because you'd have these refugees coming back and these people, you know, giving these horror stories and and everything. And it seems like people were really, really changed by that. And like the opinion of people and the fear that people had of Catholics kind of shifted at that point. Like, would you, would you, I, I guess, agree to that? Or, you know, can you talk a little yeah, bit about I, how that I affected? I would say so, because, I mean, it was by, by now, it was 15 years since Elizabeth had become queen. And during that 15 years, the older, you know, older people who'd been born and brought up as Catholics were, you know, dying off. Catholic priests were were no longer being ordained in England. There were fines for non-attendance at the regular services. So gradually, the, the population was becoming fundamentally Protestant as opposed to fundamentally Catholic. And this uh, this sight of appalling persecution certainly gave um, weight to the the more radically Protestant government views and fears about Catholicism. Yes, so I, I would say it certainly did make people far more nervous about you know what what the Catholic powers might be planning for England, and it made it perhaps more politically acceptable to. I mean, the, the fines for not going to church from being a shilling went up to twenty pounds, which was, you know, a year's income for a for a quite comfortable family. So to not go to church anymore, you know, it was almost impossible not to do that. And therefore, I mean, it was a very, I mean, it was a very good policy. The, the of, I mean, Elizabeth was uh, cleverer than to think that pro, that persecution, open persecution, would ever work. The pol- the policy of education and bringing up a new generation as Protestants was was actually very effective, and it made it 
and this the the massacre certainly created a, a bogeyman of Catholic persecution, which mm-hmm. you know was certainly um you know was certainly and and the very very heavy handed actions of Spain in the Netherlands again supported this idea that um you know that that they would try to reimpose Catholicism with um, the sword and the fire. Sure. So then he comes back and I kind of want to talk about this transition from him being uh, a diplomat and an ambassador to then becoming how we kind of remember him as this spy master and the founder of the first kind of major modern spy network. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Well, he, he never he never actually stopped being a diplomat. Now he he went on various diplomatic um, missions throughout Elizabeth's reign, but at, but he came back and he was appointed as one of Elizabeth's two principal secretaries. So she usually had two secretaries, sometimes one, and he started off as the junior one, but became the senior one. And it was the secretary's job to do you know pretty much everything. So. Uh, Cecil had started off as the secretary and become Lord Treasurer. He was now Lord Burley. Uh, so it was. So the secretary handled nearly all of the day-to-day business of the the monarch. So he, you know, liaised between the monarch and the council. He liaised with, you know, he he did. Add, he was the 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 monarch's right-hand man, so to speak. So he had an enormous workload. But as part of what and and foreign affairs and domestic affairs weren't split out into different departments. So the secretary did had a finger in every pie. So one of Walsingham's major concerns was the threat he perceived from Mary, Queen of Scots and the threat he perceived from Spain. He needed information just like any just like today the more data he had the more information he had the more he felt he could manage the situation and control it and he he was a man who was very um very conscious of detail very very hard working an absolutely ideal man to set up a, a sort of network of informers I, there'd been informers for years i mean cromwell had a very nice um spy ring but it became much more bureaucratized, institutionalized uh, under Walsingham. I mean, there were the, the codes that they built, the ciphers. I mean, there's some extraordinary, um, the complexity of the ciphers that they used and the mathematical code cracking and the um, when you think they did all, did it without computers and quite extraordinary uh, intellectual challenge that that some of this posed. Mm-hmm. So he had, he had, As I mentioned before, his five sisters had been married into all sorts of useful places. So he had a large network of informers in the city who um, talked to the merchants, who gathered information from uh, elsewhere. Lots of informers, it wasn't necessarily their full-time job. They They might be a merchant or a student abroad, but they would send reports back to Walsingham mm-hmm. and his circle. And um, so he gathered more and more information. And he also, I mean, I don't think you can doubt that he put what what you might call an agent provocateur into situations where he thought plots might develop. And now, of course, people are free to ignore temptation. But, you know, even at the time, people thought there was a there was a level of entrapment potentially in some of the plots that were discovered relating to Mary, Queen of Scots. But 
as as Walsingham put it to Cecil, um, there's more danger in fearing too little than in fearing too much. So can you talk to me? I, it's, you know, wrapped up when we did do the Mary Queen of Scots stuff and it, it, he's all wrapped up in all of this. Yes. Um, so I don't want to hmm. necessarily go that deep into what happened with Mary Queen of Scots. But can you talk to me a little bit from his perspective of how he came up with the... Well, how he was involved in catching her and then pressing for her execution, I suppose. He and, and Cecil saw Mary as a threat. Well, from the from the day she became um, Queen of Queen of Scots, Queen of France, had a claim to the throne of England. Neither of neither uh, Walsingham nor Cecil seemed to think it was possible that Mary could rule England as a Catholic monarch and not interfere with the Protestant settlement, even though that is what she had done in Scotland. They, they just couldn't conceive that she would be anything but determined to bring England back to, back to Catholicism. And with Elizabeth having no other direct heir, I mean, there were the, this, the Grey sisters, but by 1578, even the youngest of those, Mary, was, was dead. Uh, there was only, really only Mary, Queen of Scots, and her son, James, and... Um, you know, so they they would they want to do anything to keep Mary off the throne, and of course, the more they did to keep her off the throne, the more they had to do to keep her off the throne. Because if she had become queen, you know, they'd have they'd have had a short shrift from her, or at least so they so they would have assumed, probably not unreasonably. So that was their whole policy, and particularly, I think you can think that well, the massacre of Saint Bartholomew. The Guise family, Mary's cousins, were the primary movers behind it. So you can see that you know he might well assume that she's going to be influenced by them because she she had been previously as as Queen of France. So you know it wasn't you know that he didn't make the whole idea up, but he perhaps took it to you know more extreme than it than it might otherwise have been had it had had he followed a different line of thinking. He, he was certain that this was that Mary was determined to get rid of Elizabeth, determined to become queen and determined to make England Protestant again, oh, Catholic again. So encouraging her and her followers into treasonable acts was fair game as far as he was concerned, because if they fell into treason, then, you know, they could be legitimately executed. So he had a a whole sort of infiltration into her household and her, you know, from time to time her papers were read and so forth. Hence the need for the, um, the the codes on both sides and the code cracking on both sides and infiltrated her household. Well, the, the, the Babington plot was set up on the basis that letters were going to pass to and fro. And what Queen Mary didn't know was that her letters were being read as they went in and out. Now, Queen Elizabeth was very, very reluctant to act against Mary. To overthrow a monarch was a very dangerous precedent. It's why she was reluctant to get involved in the Netherlands to overthrow Philip of Spain. You know, but where, where does it all end? Once you start overthrowing kings and queens, you know, it, it's a slippery slope in Elizabeth's view. Mm-hmm. So Walsingham knew that he needed really hard evidence against Mary. It was no good to say, oh, well, she approved the plot, he had to get evidence in her own handwriting, which he did in that uh, a letter was sent to Mary outlining a plot of assassination against Elizabeth. And Mary, although she didn't specifically say, yes, go ahead and kill the Queen, what she did say is something along the lines of, when the gentlemen have done what they, you know, what you suggest, blah, blah, blah. 
So she mm-hmm. didn't say, don't, don't, don't do, do it. it. And this, this came into the hands of um, uh, Walsingham and one of his, one of his, um, his office who read it, he drew a little sign of the gallows next to Mary's handwriting. <laughs> so, you know, she, she, she hanged herself, but he put her in a position to do that. But, you know, she was, she was free not to. She had previously um, warned the English government. She, she had said, I'm, I'm being held against my will. It's my duty as a queen and as well to, to try to escape. And I will do anything that I need to, to do that. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can argue it both ways, I suppose. Right. But for Walsingham was obviously jubilant. And um, Mary, uh, Mary was uh, tried and convicted. Elizabeth still hesitated, partly, you know, for the reasons I mentioned before, and also because she feared that if she actually went ahead and executed Mary, the French would take umbrage because she had been Queen of France. So and also because of the, the Guise, the power of the Guise family. And the the Spanish, as you know, Mary is sort of the, the 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 Catholic heir to the English throne. So Elizabeth had felt that going too far against Mary would be provocative, whereas Walsingham continually argued with Elizabeth that you know France and Spain were threatening anyway, so you might as well get it over with, and let's 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 preempt their their attack. And yes, when when Elizabeth eventually signed the signed the death warrant, she said to her secretary, the other secretary Davison, that um, she thought Walsingham would probably die of grief when he saw saw her signature on the warrant because. Uh, she she was rather sarcastic, but uh, yeah. right, right. And then she pretended like like plausible deniability. Yeah, like she yeah. Oh, I didn't really, really mean it. it. I I only signed it. I didn't mean anybody to have it. I I was going to recall it. Oh, bother! It went out. Mm-hmm. Damn. <laughs> Clever. So then, what did Walsingham do in his later years? He was still working working like a Trojan. Um, he had uh. He had a couple of side interests, which are quite interesting. He invested in the Muscovy Company, which uh, was one of the early trading companies. Sure. Um, he also, and this is, you know, perhaps where the legacy of, of some of the ideas of, of the time still resonate today. He was a strong promoter of plantations in in the Americas. He he was a supporter of the, some of the various um, schemes to set up colonies there, but also tragically in Ireland. There was a very strong feeling in amongst um, English bureaucratic circles that Ireland was ignorant and backward and didn't follow the rule of law. And there were a nest of Catholics and full of um, Spanish spies. And, you know, what they really needed was some some good, robust Englishmen to go and teach them how to behave. So there were the the early Protestant plantations, as they called it, of, you know, they, they'd ship good Protestants o- over to try to change the culture of Ireland. Now, we know how that worked out. So, I mean, you, reading reading some of the descriptions of the, the perceptions of, of the Irish and Gallic culture, I mean, it, you know, really was, you know, terribly offensive stuff that, that they genuinely believed. And, and of course, there was money to be made as well. They, they would invest in these. So they'd pay for people to go there effectively. And it, it was an investment in setting up, you know, new towns, new farming methods, new more perhaps more profitable ways of commerce rather than the traditional feudal system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Walsingham, in the end, had to sell his shares in a plantation to pay off his son-in-law's debts. Uh, yeah, his his private life. He seems to have been happily married to Ursula. Their their daughter Mary died young. Francis was married to Sir Philip Sidney, 
And Philip Sidney, uh, Francis Walsey, the father, love, loved him dearly. He'd been with him in Paris. He was part of the Dudley-Sydney connection. Um, so, and Philip Sidney is obviously famous as a poet, as a, a gentleman. He, you know, he gave, famously gave his water to a, a soldier who needed it more when he was wounded. Right. Um, so he was, you know, sort of a, a hero to, to Protestant Englishmen. And he married Walsingham's daughter, but he he died of um, wounds after the Battle of Zutphen. Uh, and mm. Walsingham paid off his debts and paid for the most one of the most elaborate funerals ever given to a commoner in England mm. his burial in St Paul's Cathedral he did ask uh, the Queen to contribute but um, that wasn't the sort of thing that Elizabeth was terribly keen on doing and not even Leicester contributed even though Sydney was his nephew so um, it seems a bit, bit mean of them really but uh, Yes, but uh, Walsingham, well, Sidney wasn't always in Elizabeth's good books because he had written a, a, a pamphlet protesting against one of her marriage proposals. So, um, you know, he'd been banished from court. So Walsingham was, so that that happened round about the time of the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots. So Walsingham was, he was not as happy as he might have been that year. Then after Mary, Queen of Scots' death, when it became obvious that Spain would invade, Walsingham was responsible for getting the professor uh, preparing the defences of England. So he spent a lot of time and effort organising the coasts, uh, getting the, the musters ready, the beacons, the, you know, the provisions, everything that would be needed to um, fight off the invader. So that, that kept him busy. And he, mm -hmm. he was in poor health. He had some sort of um, kidney disease. In early 1589, he was, you know, very, very poorly. Elizabeth, occasionally she had to give him time off, time off when he was actually sick, but she didn't she didn't really coddle him, shall we say? Yeah. So in, by April 1590, he was he was really very poorly. He'd had a he had a fit, but uh, Elizabeth said, "Well, I'm sorry about that, but you can't you can't uh, you can't retire until you find somebody to take you take your place. So just get on with the work." Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, Elizabeth could be very kind and sympathetic to people she was fond of, but she wasn't always that sympathetic. And although she respected Walsingham and appreciated what he did for her, I don't think she she didn't have the same affection for him that she had for Burley or for Leicester. Mm -hmm. So he died on the 6th of April and was buried in the same tomb as his son-in-law, Philip Sidney. Elizabeth, she very, very kindly forgave his various debts to the crown. But since most of them had been run up in, you know, running his spy ring because he didn't get paid for that, he had to, you know, he had to fork, fork for it out, for, out of his own pocket. Um, you know, that wasn't that magnanimous. <laughs> uh, his wife lived on for another 10 or 12 years. She died just before Elizabeth, off the top of my head. And um, Frances Walsingham, then the daughter, she then married, she married the Earl of Essex and lost that husband as well, because, you know, obviously the, the right. Essex Rebellion. And she married a third time, another Earl, the Earl of Clanricard, and had more children who, you know, descendants still around today. So where can people go to learn more about Frances Walsingham? Well, there's quite a, there's a number of books. There's a couple, there's, um, the, the the Queen's the Queen's spy master I think John Cooper that's that's a a biography of him he there's uh, God's Agents by Alice Hogg which it, which talks it, it's similar in its subject matter to Jesse Child's God's Traitors and they both talk about the spying and the sort of networks and and that aspect of it yeah there's there's two or three books about him he pops up of course in uh, biographies of Elizabeth you know um, Anne Somerset's Elizabeth, uh, 
Stephen Alford's book on Burley he plays a part in. Um, so, yeah, there's a fair bit about him. I mean, there's obviously um, his life story is on our Tudor Times website. Actually, one of the nice, interesting things, and there is an article about this on our website, is you may be familiar with the painting, The Allegory of the Tudor Succession, where Henry VIII is sitting in the middle with under his crown, you know, a cloth of state with Edward VI next to him, Mary to the right holding hands with her husband Philip and Elizabeth to the left. And Mary and Philip are leading the gods of war. And Elizabeth is leading the the signs of plenty and peace. And it is said, I'm not 100% convinced about it, but, um, you know, it is it is the accepted view that this was a gift from Elizabeth to Walsingham, this painting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So, um, interesting. yes, yeah, no, it is an interesting one. Cool. Well, is there anything you want to add about him? Uh, no, I think I've probably uh, probably gone on long enough about old Sir Francis. I, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I can admire the man's dedication and the work and his utter, utter commitment. But yes, and you know, and, and, and of course, we only know he's about his business persona. We don't really know what he was like in his private life. I mean, his clear attachment to Sydney and his daughter and his wife suggests that he was probably quite a nice chap in his personal life yeah he's he seems like like you can admire the integrity of the man yes. without necessarily agreeing with him yes i think one of the uh, at the at the trial of mary queen of scots she accused him of having uh, you know uh, in, of trying to entrap her and of sort of interpolating things into her letters and he said i as a private man have done nothing not beseeming an upright and honest man. Neither for the public person which I bear have I done anything not belonging to my place. I confess that I have been careful of the safety of the Queen and the realm and have curiously sought to find the plots against her. So he made a distinction between his private morality and what he did as a, as a public servant. Thank you again to Melita Thomas for taking the time to tell us more about Francis Walsingham. You can get more information on the England cast site at englandcast.com. I actually did a separate episode on Francis Walsingham a couple of years ago. So I linked to that. And I have a couple of other links based on the stuff that we talked about in the show here in the book recommendations. So go to englandcast.com for that. And also remember, if you like this show, the best way you can help it is to leave a rating on iTunes. It's great. Also, you can check out tutorfair.com for your gift giving needs. Thanks so much, you guys. I will be back in two more weeks. I can't wait to talk to you again. Bye bye. Blow, northern wind, ascend for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Ich hoch aboard in Bauerbrick, that soul is Samley's on seat. 